you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So today, I'm really happy to welcome Robbie Young, CEO of Animoca Brands. Welcome, Robbie. Hi. Good to be here today. So Animoca Brands is a gaming studio and publisher. Um, You specialize in gamification, blockchain, and artificial intelligence to develop and publish a broad portfolio of mobile products. Games include the Sandbox, both, I guess, the the kind of franchise, the early editions, and this later edition, which is um, on a blockchain, Crazy Kings, Crazy Defense Heroes, as well as popular intellectual properties such as Garfield, Snoopy, Thomas and Friends, all things that I want to talk about um, later about how you're kind of bringing these brands and franchises into the space. Um, You're also exclusive distributor for China for CryptoKitties. So um, I definitely want to talk about that both generally and in the context of Asia. So reasons why I've got you on the show, there are several. Firstly, you have started several businesses um, in China and Hong Kong, including mobile uh, telecoms, software applications, cable television, internet services, outdoor advertising, you, know, you name it, very broad background. Um, you've raised many rounds of private and institutional venture capital. I believe you've you know, deployed quite a bit of it as well. Four IPOs, several trade sales, um, lots of M&A. I believe you even had an exit from your first company, Redgate, back in 2013, the first company I could see that you co-founded, right? Uh, Yes, yes. So we did, um, it was an ad-supported media business, um, and we spun off the magazine publishing business. We merged it with a Hong Kong company, a well-known newspaper and magazine publisher, and then we did a spin-off IPO of that business on the Hong Kong market. And then eventually the remaining part of the business, which was TV and outdoor, um, we folded into another listed Hong Kong company about six years later. Right. So not bad for a first startup, first time founder. You flatter me because that was not the first company I started. Okay. You you got to you got to fail it two or three first. I was going to say. I was going to say. I'm, I was very envious of you to get that right the first time. Um, and as you as you said, uh, well, as I said at the beginning, you know, several games there. But I think the approach that you've taken with F1 Delta Time and Sandbox, we actually had Sebastian of Sandbox on the podcast not so long ago, two very exciting games. And I think how those games have been rolled out as a consequence of tokenization and being able to sell in-game assets is really interesting. Um, So I want to delve a little bit into that later. So to try and summarize your origin story. As I said, uh, Redgate Media Group, where you were co-founder, was a home run, as you described it. Uh, Since then, as every good successful founder, you had been a NED advisor, investor, uh, as I said, I guess, both as an angel and uh, as a VC uh, to several projects, uh, including uh, Schmap, Conspexit Limited, Gamey, and, and, and several others. In September 2012, you joined Outblaze Ventures, which is 
Is that the venture arm for Animoca? Outblaze Ventures was essentially, um, it was the predecessor or precursor to Animoca Brands. And so what we did was we built, you know, uh, I joined when the business had already been started for a few years because um, Yat and David, the founders, started it uh, in 2009 after they'd sold their previous uh, internet messaging business to IBM. And uh, they then started on mobile games pretty much at the dawn of the app stores. And after a few years of success, when I had finished wrapping up what I was doing with Redgate, um, I joined them and, and Yat and I had been friends for you know, more than a decade prior, um, since we were kind of part of the original class of tech entrepreneurs in Hong Kong that cut our teeth in the, in the early web days in the mid nineties. And, um, and when I joined them, I think the idea was that it was a, for me, it was a blending of things that I'd done in mobile. And by that, I mean, voice telephony um, back in the early nineties, as well as advertising, which I'd spent a decade in and other media, because this seemed like a blend of all of those things together. And, you know, the bankers call it TMT, right? Telecom media technology. And it was all of that in one product. And I thought that was really cool, even though personally, I was not a big gamer and I was not as familiar with gaming at the time, but I did understand media and distribution. And so I joined the business. And then as we grew it, we decided in 2015 to take part of the business public, which is Animoca Brands. Um, and so I've been running the public company Animoca Brands since then. Right. And I believe Outblaze Ventures was backed by Intel Capital, IGG Excel, um, and Animoca itself uh, has one of the largest portfolios of mobile games in Asia, just so people have a context of the scale that we're talking here. And clearly that would help explain why it had the right qualities to go public. Um, and then, as you say, 2014, uh, CEO of Animoca Brands. So maybe we could kind of just pause there and talk about Animoca Brands and it, its kind of strategy. And then, as I said, you know, you guys have been very early into things like CryptoKitties. I think you also had an investment into Dapper Labs, right? Correct. So we participated in their Series A, um, and we've had a close relationship with the with the founders, you know, since they started the business. Um, and and really, you know, as a mobile studio, our big philosophy and one of our themes, which is why we call ourselves brands, Animoca Brands, has been leveraging licensed IP to create games. Um, and by that, you know, we mean original games that we make, but we license brands to use in the games. So it ends up as a Snoopy game or a Garfield game or a, you know, Ultraman game, et cetera. But we pay royalties and the game and the revenues and everything are ours. We don't, it's not a work for hire. The reason we took that strategy of licensing IP was because we felt that that's a really great way to connect to customers because people recognize brands, there are big fan bases of brands, and as the market for games gets more and more crowded, um, having a brand people already know and love uh, is a great way to stick out from the crowd. So we took it as a strategy to help us address the rapidly increasing marketing costs on mobile. Um, and as a consequence, we've also carried that strategy now with us through to blockchain. So the question is, how did we end up in blockchain? Um, and this goes back to 2017 when we, you know, observed what at that time Axiom Zen was doing with CryptoKitties. And I think as technologists, you know, it caught our radar pretty early. Um, we thought it was cool. We'd followed what had gone on in blockchain with ICOs and other 
you know, fintech applications. Hong Kong, of course, is a fintech hub. So there's a lot of talk and a lot of, you know, happenings in the local community. And I think um, we felt that creating a working relationship with CryptoKitties was a great way for us to learn what this was all about. So we agreed to publish CryptoKitties in Greater China in, I think it was December of 2017. Um, and then I think it took us probably 60 days to decide to pivot the whole business. Wow. Um, and we, we did that, I think, not because we were particularly not because we felt like we were big risk takers, because honestly, we're not. And you didn't need to take risks, right? I mean, you were at scale where you didn't need to find an edge necessarily. You could have just counted what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But I think for us, we found we felt that we identified a situation that felt familiar to us as, you know, middle-aged guys who'd gone through a couple of bubbles, seen the web from start to where we are now. And we felt like this was another cycle that we saw that was similar to the cycle of mobile and the cycle of the web, where um, we were very much in the early adopter phase, but we wanted to be in on the ground floor and had been you know, fortunate enough to participate in a couple of previous technology revolutions. Um, so because of that, I think we felt that it was less risky because we felt that the rationale for blockchain technology being a part of gaming entertainment was just, you know, was a real no-brainer. Um, and it's a no-brainer for a lot of reasons, but I think some of the reasons are not the ones that people often really talk about. Um, so obviously blockchain is great because you can create really cool NFTs, people can trade them, they can use them from game to game and transport them. But there are some really basic things too that make blockchain fantastic for games. So we came up with a thesis early on before we knew that much about blockchain, that it just seemed to be logical that all games should tokenize their in-game currency. Because by and large, games rely on a freemium business model with some kind of premium or soft currency in the game. You go into the game, you spend your iTunes account points or your, your Android store, you know, your Google Play account points, um, and you convert your fiat into diamonds or hearts or gold or whatever the medium of exchange is in the game, but it's a, it's not a real currency. It's a, you know, it's just a, something made up that exists only in that game. And we thought, look, it makes so much sense. Why wouldn't you just tokenize all in-game currency? First of all, it makes it secure and it, and it actually gives it value and provides value to the players. Imagine if a player could redeem their, their investment in the game if they don't spend it all. It's a simple, simple little thing, which, you know, on the surface to a game developer, they may think, oh, well, actually, you know, the extra top up people put into their accounts is revenue for us. That's, it's very short sighted. It actually grows the ecosystem, in our opinion, to give players the opportunity to have a more fair deal for themselves. Um, and then I think the other part of it was in thinking about how people spend money on content. Um, we felt the idea of true digital ownership was a real groundbreaker because once you leverage a technology like NFTs for players to be able to actually own their content, personally, I think the coolest thing is that is less about the fact that you can invest in content that might increase in value, but just the fact that you don't lose all your money. 
So if I go in and play a game and I spend, you know, $100 on a game in the course of a month and buy virtual items in the game, if I can then sell those items when I get tired of playing the game and just get back, you know, 10 cents on the dollar, that's, that's miles away from where I am today. Today, I get nothing. So just that alone means that you can take a $150 billion game industry and, you know, grow it by 10%. That's real money. So that, I think those were the very simple ideas that we saw that said, look, this is going to change everything. All the other stuff that we can do is really cool, but these basic things will fundamentally change how gaming works. So I'm interested. It's, it's a minor thing, but I think it's important to, to understand. So as you've made that shift, you described it in, in a cycle, and obviously I agree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing the show if I didn't. Um, you know, so we call it Web3. You talked about, you know, mobile, social. How, how do you internally describe this cycle? What's the nomenclature that you use? Or, or don't you have one? Because I think one of the challenges that we have as an industry, if you can even call us that, is how we communicate to the outside world who don't care what it is and, and why it is representative of a new cycle. So I'm not sure... Let me just say, when I say I'm not sure, I mean as in the jury's still out, um, that we need to call it anything. So, you know, we call ourselves blockchain game developers at the moment, but I really do think that blockchain is just tech that consumers shouldn't care about or know exists. Um, because I really, I, I typically make the comparison to online. And if you'll think back 10 or 15 years, we all used to advertise, oh, our game's an online game because that was a feature. Most games were not. And so for a period of time, being an online game was something you advertised to promote that you're different and had more features. And today it's like breathing. Everybody's expected to be online even if you're on a console in your living room. And so I think blockchain will be the same where in 10 years we'll look back and think, oh my God, we actually spent money and didn't own any content? That's crazy. It just won't make any sense anymore, just like we think about dial-up modems today. So in that respect, I think I can see the generational shift and, the, and we as, as companies working in the sector will think of it that way, the way we think of mobile because it created a new economy of companies. But I think from the consumer standpoint, it's just another step in the slow evolution of technology. And so, you know, clearly you more than anybody are at this interface or bridging brands, existing franchises into this space? How, how helpful is even talking about blockchain in that context? You know, is it is it a barrier because you then have to explain blockchain to them? Or, you know, clearly it is currently in your shop window. How additive is it versus a point of friction? I think it's it's actually not any different than talking to brands about games in general, because it just depends on the brand you're talking about. Some are really savvy about new technologies and new ways to leverage their brands. And other brands really think of licensing as an afterthought and really from a management standpoint, only care about their core product. And so licensing their brands for other purposes is just, you know, some a box ticking exercise where maybe they'll make a few dollars every year on it. And so they don't pay much attention to it. Um, when we have had those discussions to get people's heads around the idea of true digital ownership, um, 
the simplest way to do it is to make an analogy to physical toys or plush toys or something like that, action figures, because those are things that they're very accustomed to licensing their brands for. And in many ways, they're very much like NFTs. You know, a typical concern of somebody would be, a licensor would be that if I license you my brand and this, you know, NFT with uh, my character can be taken out of the game and used elsewhere, how do I control that they don't deface it or that, you know, or that they don't, you know, destroy it? And the answer is simple. If I buy a Star Wars action figure at the toy shop, I could take it home and melt it on my stove. There's nothing you can do about it. It's my property. I own it. And if you think of it that way, then, you know, there's a logic to it that they then understand, but it's very difficult, as you well know, to get your, your head around the idea that there's digital content that cannot be copied because we've spent 20 years trying to figure out how to solve that problem. And it seemed unsolvable since, you know, we all watched the iPod, right? And iTunes and some very expensive exercises at digital rights management, which ultimately ended us in a world of streaming because the problem couldn't be solved. Yeah, I mean, I think that point of digital scarcity is the the, the, the key that I normally use to unlock somebody's mind, um, to, to think about the possibilities here for the first time we have digital scarcity. And, and if, you, if they need to understand one thing, it's, it's that. Um, so as I said, you know, you guys, well, as you said, you guys have got in very early into the space. You move very quickly with CryptoKitties, Dapper Labs, Sandbox. Um, how has the space evolved? Because, you know, I came back to NFTs, it was probably only in the summer. So I think July, August, I'd kind of, obviously I've been in the space for just under seven years, or maybe around seven years. So I was aware of NFTs, but I kind of took my eye off it. Um, didn't really pay much attention to it, came back in the summer and was blown away by what was going on. And you know, clearly you've been there throughout that whole journey when perhaps there wasn't so much attention. How has the space evolved over the last few years? So this year has obviously been great for NFTs. Um, it's been great for the game industry in general. We are a kind of a, you know, morbid beneficiary of the pandemic because when people spend time at home, they spend more time playing games. Um, and we're all very lucky, frankly, because it keeps us all working um, in a very difficult environment. It's changed dramatically. The, the thing about NFTs that's tricky is that the technology underlying it has also been changing very rapidly. Um, I think we're still having many of the same discussions now that we had two years ago, three years ago um, about uh, one blockchain versus another blockchain or side chains, or you know, how, how you're deploying the product to the consumer. From our standpoint, we have never wavered in our belief that we're you know, going in the right direction because we believe fundamentally that new technology is adopted on a mass consumer basis via entertainment. That's the content that drives it. Nobody goes out and buys new technology because, oh, that online banking is sweet. You know, um, with all due respect to <laughs> the finance world, that doesn't make the mass consumer audience buy stuff. You know, if you look at smartphones, people may have bought a smartphone initially because um, you could do email on as well as telephone. But now what do people mostly do on their smartphones? It's social and gaming, which are both, in my opinion, entertainment. Um, 
And we've seen that with everything from, you know, video cassette recorders to, you know, any other innovation. It's all about entertainment on a mass market. And that's where we think we see an opportunity to bring gaming to the blockchain world as opposed to, you know, and the other way around. But we feel like the blockchain universe has been very focused on all the serious problems of the world, you know, whether it's e-government or it's, uh, it's various applications for more secure finance, um, which is fine. But we think that bringing entertainment as a use case into blockchain will take blockchain from where it is today and make it enormous. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. And, that, and that's increasingly our thesis. The more time we spend speaking to people like you, you know, that it's the crossover moment for, for crypto and also promises to kind of abstract it away. So what segments do you think this is most relevant to? Is it casual, hyper-casual, or all of the above? You know, what are the beachheads? Where do you think it might not work? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think it all depends on um, where we are in terms of usability and onboarding. I think right now, um, it's most appropriate for mid and hardcore game content, um, which is content that's, you know, typically consumes more of your time. It's more of an investment to, to, to play. Whereas, you know, hyper casual kind of stuff is a little bit more difficult. And I think blockchain comes in, in a, um, in a sort of a metagame aspect. So let me take a step back. One of the things that's really cool about blockchain, when you think about it from a game developer standpoint is it allows you to create new types of metagames to appeal to consumers. So what I mean by that is, say you have, uh, you know, like in football games, for example, you have two different classes of football games that are really popular. You have the ones where you play as a player on the field, and you have the ones that are more of a metagame where you're a football manager. And football manager games are actually just as popular as the playing games and they make just as much revenue for football manager game developers. So those are the two types of games. Um, and we've done something similar to that in our F1 Delta Time racing game. So you can race cars, or you can focus on a game where you're just you know, buying and selling drivers and teams and things like that. But on top of that, there's a meta game of the fact that you own content. And so because there's an in-game economy that is an actual economy, because it's tokenized, um, there's a value placed on all that content. And so what we've done is we've, we've sort of snuck in um, some aspects of DeFi in there actually, where now if you own a car, for example, you can stake that car to earn yield in in-game currency. And because we've created this rev token, which is the in-game currency of, of the game. And that rev token is usable, not just in the game, but also in other games we make, and it will have other usability. It's essentially a motorsports token, because we thought a lot of people like, who like Formula One also like MotoGP, they like Formula E and other brands that we've licensed for this purpose. And so once you stake that car, the fun part is the car doesn't go wasted. It doesn't just sit idly on the shelf. We actually then rent it out to other players, and that's where the yield is derived from. So you can come to the game as a player with, you know, lots of money to spend and you want to invest in a collectible asset um, and buy this fancy car, or you can come with not much money as a, as a, you know, sort of a track day type and you just go and 
spend money, pay as you go to rent somebody else's car and have a fun experience. And so from a developer standpoint, we think that's really cool because it really allows you to create something for everybody, for every type of segment. There are the people who love to race cars. There are the people who love to collect F1 stuff. And there are hardcore crypto people who are like, ooh, new asset class and I can get yield. <laughs> and and yeah. all of them are welcome. And I, what I hope is that for the last category of people who are just interested in NFTs as an asset class, they'll come and they'll say, actually, this is pretty cool. I can use this car. Maybe let me try to play the game a bit before I just flip my NFT. <laughs> and, and, and we find that that's happening a lot now where people are like, oh, actually, this is much more fun than just watching the trading screen. I could play this game. And then, you know, when I'm tired of it, then I can sell my NFTs. Yeah, really interesting. And so will you be able to stake behind a person or a team? Does that then extend into esports as well? Um, not yet, but watch this space. Yeah, I mean, it feels like an obvious, uh, obvious extension. Um, so, you know, as you talk about this meta game, and as you say, in-game economy and earning content, um, speaking off air, you said that that affords you a new way to roll out a game. And so both with Sandbox and um, the game that you just mentioned, it's allowed you to, to launch slightly earlier in the cycle. Could you talk us through that, that rollout strategy that this now affords? Sure, no problem. Um, I think this goes back to a theme that we've written widely on Medium posts like everybody else does these days um, about our belief that this flips the idea of distribution and content on its head because we think that content becomes the platform in the case of true digital ownership. And we observed this with what the guys at Dapper did with CryptoKitties because they created an idea of the Kittyverse. And this was something that really resonated with us as game designers. And the Kittyverse was a really simple idea. Lots of people own CryptoKitties, they play the core game, and now there's a big audience out there of kitty owners. So it makes sense that if they open up access to their platform, other developers can now create applications, games, whatever, for people to use their kitties. So I'll create a kitty theme park or a kitty Pac-Man game or something because there's an audience of spenders, and that's most important to game developers because we're always looking for spenders who own kitties and want to play with them somewhere. Um, and so it's logical then that the kitties become the platform and you know, substitute the word NFT in there. We think that's really exciting because it's about creating audiences who own content they then attract developers to them to make more content for them to use their NFTs in. Um, and I think that's very, very exciting. And so what you were asking about with regards to timelines, if you look at F1 Delta time, for example, we um, started first trying to engage with the F1 fan community by launching a series of digital collectible cars. Um, and we did them in auction format on OpenSea. And the reason for that was um, to get people engaged, um, also for PR purposes, because auctions attract a little bit more attention. Um, we happened to get lucky by accident that our very first collectible sold uh, for 419 ETH, which was the record in, in 2019 as the most expensive NFT. And uh, as a matter of fact, the owner who has just come forward to reveal himself 
uh, in the last couple of weeks on a podcast. And so we sold content actually prior to the launch of the full game. And then over time, we sold more and more content. So we sold, we did crate sales where you could buy a crate and inside the crate, it included, you know, car parts and a driver. And there was, there was a certain kind of randomness and luck involved in, um, in buying crates. Um, and then eventually we launched the first sort of playable game experience, which were the time trials. Um, and now we're launching the full racing experience um, later this quarter. And so as the game has evolved, it's helped us to build the community. It's helped us to get feedback from the community and tailor where the ultimate, you know, um, uh, where the ultimate product goes. But at the same time, from a developer standpoint, it helps us to finance development because we can sell some content to our players in advance. So you can also think of it a little bit like, uh, like crowdfunding your title. Yeah, super interesting. And so, you know, earlier you were talking about the economy, you mentioned some of the dynamics there in terms of staking, um, renting things out. One of the things that I'm finding really interesting as I go deeper down the rabbit hole, um, for example, in uh, Axie Infinity or whatever it might be, is this idea that there is the ability to play to earn. So, very quickly, this can become a job for many people. I don't know whether you would class that as pro gaming or not. I guess so. Um, and the the barrier to entry is is incredibly low. So, um, of course, some of the in-game assets are prohibitively high, I guess, if you want to play at an elite level. But the ability for somebody to enter this economy is incredibly low. They basically need, you know, I guess bandwidth, a good enough computer, presumably, and they could be anywhere in the world. Could you talk us through how you see that playing out? The kind of demographics, geographies that you you see being onboarded into this, into these types of economies. So, I think the first thing is that that whole concept is absolutely nothing new, because from a game developer standpoint, we have always, ever since free to play and the freemium model has existed we have always thought about creating two different paths to success in a game, success to win the game or to solve the puzzle or whatever it is. And those paths are usually a spending path and an earning path. So typically if you go into a, a big game, you know, battle royale game or whatever, you can spend lots of money to buy lots of armor and lots of armies and spend, spend, spend. And it gives you a tremendous advantage in the game if you spend a lot. By the same token, there is another path typically where you can play for hours and hours on end, what we call grinding, and you can earn all of those re same rewards by spending time. And that's how you create a game environment where you can put together players who are both equally passionate about the game, but on the one hand, you may have time poor executive who has money, who likes to play the game in what little time they have, compared to a hungry student who has lots of time in their hands sitting in their dormitory, um, but doesn't have any money. But they can be equal in the environment of the game because there are two different paths to success. And so what we've done with, with adding blockchain to the mix is basically just solidified that economy so that it becomes akin to real money, if you will. I mean, frankly, it is real money. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say the... So I remember 
very early in the podcast, we had Brock Pierce on and, and he was talking about how he had these gaming farms, um, you know, selling collectibles, I believe out of China um, in the early days. And that's how he actually got into cryptocurrency. Um, but I think... Well, and you'll recall that World of Warcraft gave rise to people mining gold, as in in-game gold um, right. in China. And that was, you know, that was a $100 million business a decade ago, although it was right. a gray, gray market. So essentially, that desire has always been there because people enjoy playing games. And frankly, if you think about it, using that student and executive analogy, if the student can spend enough of their time and earn rewards in the game doing a job they find fun and then sell that reward to somebody who doesn't have the time to do the same activity, hey, it's everybody wins. The difference here is that you're extending that economy. So the idea that you can exit one particular economy, you can transfer your wealth into another one. And with DeFi, I guess increasingly you can borrow against your collateral, right? And either use that to buy more digital collateral or potentially even uh, physical uh, world assets. We had um, Stephen of um, NiftyFi, uh, who's kind of got these borrowing and lending markets where where the um, the assets are collateral effectively for loans. So, so do you, do you kind of agree with that premise that this is a, a significant extension from these existing yes, economies? Absolutely. And while it may not be our job as a game developer to provide all those services, I'm sure that all those services will exist because consumers will demand them. Right, and I guess you could just you can leverage these existing things, right? So if it's it's a it's a feature that you can roll out based upon what happens in in DeFi. If if we kind of follow that trajectory and zoom out a little bit and and talk about the metaverse, so. What's your vision for the metaverse? Where does this where does this all lead to, and how quickly? I don't know that there's going to be a metaverse. Um, as we can see already, there are several competing metaverses out there, or different ideas of a metaverse. And I think that, frankly, it'll just be as it will be as diverse as the physical world is, because people like different geographical places for different reasons. And so I think with the sandbox, you know, you've You've heard the pitch from, from Sebastian. I mean, I think our vision for the sandbox is, aside from the fact that we love a metaverse, it's really focused on the creators because we wanted to create, we wanted a platform where people could come and users, players could come in and, and create their own stuff because providing an environment for that we think is really exciting. Um, we as a company spent many years in um, creating games uh, for kids. And so we understand the Minecraft Roblox um, audience and motivation well. Um, it's one of those things that you know people forget that if you look at, uh, if you think back to uh, about a year and a half ago when Fortnite was the only game anybody on earth talked about and people who never talked about games before were talking about it. Um, during the height of, of popularity of Fortnite, Minecraft and Roblox both grew. So despite the fact that everybody said their kids were playing nothing but Fortnite, uh-uh, these two juggernauts continued to grow because it's about creating your own spaces. It's not just about hanging out with your friends in someplace cool. It's also about self-expression and, and being able to bring them to your own space. Um, so I think that's, 
from a metaverse standpoint, we find a place where people can sort of hang up their shingle and make it their own is, is really attractive. So you don't subscribe to this idea that as an industry, and clearly, you know, you're you're aligned to the benefits and the principles of what I would describe as Web3. So open, you know, open economies, portability of identity assets, this kind of stuff. But but obviously the the gaming industry proper as of yet it isn't. Do you, do you not have concerns that it could get quite dystopic quite quickly? Do you think that the gravity around the the direction that you guys are taking is going to become so strong that the rest of the industry won't be able to resist it? No, I think what you're going to find is, um, I would say just looking at it as an entrepreneur, I would say it will probably evolve similar to how you, we've seen social media evolve, where, you know, people have their social circles and their purposes for engaging on lots of different social platforms. And you might have a, a, a big success at work and you decide to share that on LinkedIn, but also on Twitter and on Facebook. And those three constituencies may be very different for you as an individual, but participating in one doesn't prevent you from participating in the other. They just have different purposes for you. And I think that we'll at least in the medium term, look at metaverses the same way. I go to this metaverse because here's where I hang out with my fellow NFT art fans. Um, I go to this metaverse because I like to blow up zombies and that's what we do in this metaverse. So I think they'll just have different purposes because there's no reason there can't be a thousand metaverses. Um, it's just that as we see um, how companies are financed and grow and do user acquisition, odds are there will end up being um, you know, less than 10 juggernaut metaverses at some point in time as it matures well let's hope you're one of them i think you've definitely got a, a good a good shot at it right so um robbie it's been great having you on thanks for your time i appreciate it good luck with the go lives or i guess launch proper for for the various games um i'm certainly watching with great interest thanks for coming on fantastic thank you if you enjoyed today's podcast please make sure you subscribe rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.